want to start this morning with reading you a news clip from, uh, it's a transcription of an ABC news clip from July 25th, 2011. You guys ever watch Antiques Roadshow? I love that show. I mean, it's like, I just love that show. It's like, what are they going to pull out next? And uh, PBS's Antiques Roadshow had not seen an appraisal like this in its 16 years of production. Back then it was 16 years. A man arrived at the Tulsa Convention Center in Oklahoma Saturday with five Chinese carved cups made from rhinoceros horn, not knowing his would be the highest evaluation in the program's history. As each cup came out of the box, my jaw started to drop a little more, appraiser Lark Mason told ABC News Tulsa affiliate KTUL. His collection's estimated worth is between $1 and $1.5 million. Mason is the show's Asian art expert and said the cups are from the late 17th century or early 18th century. And the owner, who requested anonymity, told Mason he began collecting cups uh, in the 1970s and had no idea as to how much they were worth. Here's the point. If you don't know what you possess, you risk disregarding it or letting it go for something worth far less. Uh, reminded of a, some talk I had with uh, one of the guys in our body that came into some uh, crazy stuff. <laughs> and, uh, great value that, that was realized later. As we've been looking here in Hebrews chapter 12, we see that Esau did that. The writer, as we finished up last week, we saw where Esau, that it says that, that he sought for repentance with tears. It says in verse 17, for you know that afterward when Esau wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau had sold his birthright to his brother. He kind of got conned out of it because Jacob was kind of a con, but it counted. And then at the end of his father's life, he went into, he wanted to get the blessing. He was no longer entitled to the blessing because the blessing is tied to the birthright. Did I say birthmark? Anyway, the point is, is that Esau didn't realize the value of what he had. And the writer here in Hebrews is saying, look, you've got to understand the value of what you have in Christ. And he has taken us over and over and over and over again, showing us that Jesus is better. That's the theme of this book, of this letter. Uh, The persecuted Christians in the first century needed to understand Judaism going back to it's not an option. And he gives one last appeal here. Chapter 13 is the last chapter of the book. We're going to get into that either next week or the week after, depending on how long-winded I am today. Uh, (laughs) I was telling somebody before the service, I I got all finished. I love this passage. This is just a, it's a majestic passage. And, and, and the visuals are just amazing. Uh, I pray that I can do it a little bit of justice. And I ended up getting all finished with my notes. And I thought, man, Lord, this is tight. This, I got a lot of notes. I'm going to run over. And, and then I realized it was Communion Sunday. And I went, oh, well, there goes my idea of being able to finish in a hurry. So this may go into next week. The point is, is that Esau didn't appreciate the value of his birthright, which entitled him to inherit the blessings of God's promises 
to Abraham. He was in line for that. And that was not, it, was, it wasn't just the promises then, but it's also what connected him to the promise of the coming Messiah, the line of Messiah, that one who would come. He traded it for a bowl of soup. I mentioned last week, a bowl of beans, lentil stew. Uh, what he did, he gave away priceless eternal blessings. Priceless. For gratification in the moment. How my heart breaks when I, I see that happen in the life of a believer. How my heart breaks when I see that happen out there in the world over and over, multiplied by how many where people are just living for the moment, ignoring the ramifications on their soul. Ignoring the fact that this life is a fishbowl. It's like you put a fishbowl in the middle of the room and you look out. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we see through the mirror, we see through the glass dimly. And that as we look out, we get shadows of eternity. We get shadows of the kingdom. And yet, What a mistake we make if we think that this fishbowl is it for our existence. Because the real realm is what's out there, what's around that. Where The real realm is what we graduate to when we leave this body. I got news yesterday. I've had three mentors in my life. And I got news yesterday uh, from the daughter of of, uh, a guy that uh, had a, a tremendous, he hired me sight unseen out of Bible college because God was moving and doing some things that he went to be with the Lord. And I, I felt really sad for a bit. And then I began to think, man, he has, he's escaped the bounds. He's in glory. And what a, what an awesome thing. I mean, he, he, this guy had a, a, just a deep abiding love of Christ and, and love of family. And he taught me the, business that I have been in for years and years. And I mean, God used him on a number of levels. And so, uh, yeah, I I don't feel badly for him. I I feel badly for his family because he'll be missed. Anyway, the Hebrew believers in the first century, looking at this thing from Antiques Roadshow, you know, the guy had this hugely valuable thing, didn't realize it. Then looking at Esau, he had this hugely valuable thing and didn't realize it. And the Hebrew believers in the first century had this hugely valuable thing and they were wavering. They were beginning to drift, as it tells us in chapter 2. They were beginning to waffle. They were beginning to question. They were beginning to look at the temporal comforts of Judaism and what that brought because it brought peace with their family. It brought inclusion into the religious society of the day, which was more than just something they did on Saturday. It was a life. And, and, And so... What the writer is doing here is he's saying, you've got to understand the value of what you've got. You've got to see this for what it is. You've got to see that that Judaism is a shadow. And, and, and not only that, it's no longer in effect. It's been replaced. And, and so that's what the writer's doing here. He's going to go into this comparison of two mountains. Uh, and the way he does it, it's very interesting. I, I just want to sort of set it up uh, that the way he does it is he brings to light the infinite moral distance between the holiness of God and sinful man. You've got to understand that God is holy. And, and if there is a place in God's word where his holiness is really shown, it's here. 
I mean, you see it all over, but this is just a, this is a concentrated, uh, lesson on the character, the nature of God. And, and if there's anything about his nature that we need to understand is that he is holy and we are not in and of ourselves. The beauty of the cross, the beauty of redemption is he shares, he imparts his holiness to us. That's how he can include us in his family. That's why he was separated from the people up until the cross. That's why the new, the old covenant couldn't do it. It could not bring man into relationship with God. It could restore man to a point where God's wrath wouldn't devour him, but it could only reach so far. And then Jesus came. So that's what the writer's intent is. He's going to contrast the terrors of Mount Sinai, representing Jewish life under the old covenant of law, with the glories of Mount Zion, picturing the life of boundless blessing under the new covenant in Christ. He wants his readers to understand that right living flows out of right knowing. And that we uh, here centuries and centuries later, a couple of millennia later, can can benefit greatly from the wisdom of this passage. Uh, if they could know and understand the immense riches that one possesses in Christ, they wouldn't want to go back to Judaism. And the same goes for you and I. When we understand the immense riches of what we have in Christ, the world holds no appeal. By contrast, because as our hearts sometimes can wander, the world can begin to hold more appeal. We can begin to call our name in ways. We can begin to be tempted, to be drawn, to be seduced. Because all of us have this fallen nature. Yes, if you're a Christian this morning, it's a lower nature, but it's still there. That's that, that warring thief within that would steal everything that we have if we give place to that. And, and that's the writer's point. It, it, he wants to show us that it's empty, uh, that that any comfort, any satisfaction that we derive from this world is fleeting. By contrast, what God offers is eternal. I'm going to go through, I'm going to read through verses 18 through 21. Uh, as we get started here, and then we'll come back and, and look at it a bit. And verse 18, For you've not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness, and to darkness, and tempest, tempest is a strong wind, uh, and to the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure what was commanded, and, quote, and as... And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Verses 18 through 21 are about Mount Sinai. And and in it, God is stating his holiness in this whole scene out of the Old Testament. Understand that we do well to understand that to come into the presence of a holy God is a direct threat to our souls. Now, before you throw rotten fruit at me and say, wait a minute, we're under all that, just let's ride through the study here. But you've got to understand, that's why God, he is not a tame God. That's why his holiness, when you understand his holiness, it produces within us a godly fear. And, and I don't mean afraid. What I mean is, is an awe and a reverence and, and, and a respect 
of who he is. Infinitely pure. That's what the word holiness means. It means he is infinitely pure. He is so far separate from and above us that that's the reason. His holiness is the reason that sinful flesh cannot occupy the same space as he does. That's the reason why if even so much as a beast touches the mountain, it needs to die. If if the people touch the mountain, they need to die because nothing had been put in place to protect the people from the holiness of God. Yes, a mortal threat. Sinai was frightening because God's holiness is frightening to the unrepentant soul. The law was given in order to bring man into covenant with God. It was in order to give man a covering for sin that man could live. The, the, the law, really, it was given as a device to protect man from God. If you look at it in that context, it, it, it's amazing. But going back to verse 18, he says, you have not come to this mountain. <laughs> so I want to be clear. He's talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers. He's saying, this is not the mountain you came from. Again, he's beginning to lay out why what they have is infinitely more valuable than what they used to have. And, and by application, what we have is infinitely more valuable than what we used to have, than what we have out there being along in the world. So he says, you haven't come to the mountain that may be touched and burned with fire and blackness and darkness, darkness and temp- tempest. Mount Sinai was this place where Israel went after they were delivered from Egypt and they wandered for 40 or 50 days. It was the, on the 50th day, they, they ended up at Mount Sinai, this mountain where God said, look, Moses, I want you to set bounds for the people. In other words, coordinate off to where they don't come any closer. And, and in, in Exodus 19, in verse 12, he says, in three days, I'm going to come down. I'm going to descend upon the mountain and I will be there presently with the people. But there is a separation. Sin had not yet been fully atoned for and it wouldn't be until the cross. So in verse 14, I'm going to read 14 through 20 in Exodus 19 here, uh, just so that we understand from the Old Testament what the writer is referring to, because he's doing a Bible study again, guys. I love the fact that over and over and over and over again, the writer to the Hebrews does a whole bunch of Bible studies, and that's what he's doing. If you want to talk about why do we pay such high regard to God's word, well, that's what these guys were doing back then. And so he's from the Bible, from their Bible, which was the Old Testament scriptures, he's going to bring this all about and bring this into focus. So in Exodus 19, verse 14, it says, So when Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes, and he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Interesting. Not going to, oh, rabbit trail. No, no, no. Got too much to cover. Um, Do not come near your wives. That's interesting too. Not going to go there either. All right. Then it came to pass on that, on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. I mean, we look, I look at this like a Hollywood movie. I, like I said, the scenery in this is just amazing. Think about if you were there at the base of this mountain, this cloud comes down, lightning is going off, the place is thundering, the, the ground is shaking, and, and I mean, there's this whole scene unfolding. 
and you know that it's God, the creator of all that is, I would tremble too. I, I don't know how you couldn't. Verse 17, And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. It smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. I'd love to hear what that sounded like. I, I hope we have reruns in heaven. That's all I can say. In verse 20, it says, And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So when Moses goes up, and I'm just going to summarize here, what he does is he goes up on the mountain, God gives him the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and then he gives him the rest of the law. Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. All right? Things are going great, but I, I want to just back up for a minute. And look at some significance in this. Fifty days earlier, they had had the Passover, the very first Passover. Uh, and that was when the sacrifice of the lamb, uh, you know, to take the blood and put it on the lintels and the doorpost, and the angel of death will pass over you. So that's 50 days earlier. Three days after that, they were delivered through the Red Sea. Uh, just amazing parallels we'll get to as we go along. God now ratifies his covenant by giving the law. It was, it was him saying, okay, that which I promised to do back in Exodus 6, read it for yourself, Exodus 6, 6 through 8, it's the gospel. Um, I wrote a term paper on it in college. I just, I so love that passage. He, he says, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I'm gonna be as a husband to you. I, you know, I'm just gonna take you out of Egypt and I'm gonna take you into the land. I mean, he, this whole thing that God's promised and he ratifies that. Now he gives them the, the law. And, and the only thing is, is that in this scene, the law comes with a sense of fear terror, and dread. And it was by design. Because the people had to understand the holiness of their God. We do well to understand that also. Even though, as we'll get to when we get to Mount Zion, we're covered in the blood. We And we share his holiness. So Moses was called up to the mountain where God gave him the law. Uh, and... and Interesting thing here is that uh, 40 days out, when Moses comes down the mountain, he hears the sound. It sounds like war in the camp. And then he goes, no. And, and Aaron's talking to him. says, no, that's singing that you hear. No, not Aaron. Um, I can't remember. Uh, it's not the sound of, of singing, of, of war. It's the sound of singing. The people were parting. They had made this golden calf. All of that. I want you to, something that I connect to that is that fear did not change hearts. Moses takes off, he's gone for a few weeks, and during that time, the people go into such a state of decay, they make this golden calf, they name it Yahweh. Interesting. Uh, and then in Exodus chapter 31, it says this, it says, Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp, and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. 
Now, this wasn't thoughtless slaughter. He does, what he does initially is he separates the people who had been in rebellion towards God from the people that were with Moses, the people that were faithful. And they were instruments of God's judgment throughout the camp that day, his judgment against the people who had rebelled. Interesting, uh, it says in verse 28, uh, so the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So Moses comes down with the tablets. He ends up throwing the tablets, smashing them against a rock, and, and, and has to pronounce judgment on the people of God. God was gonna, he was gonna wipe them out. And Moses ends up interceding for the people there. The point is, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he says, we're ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Amen. Praise God that we don't have to fear his wrath. Verse 19, in the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. In Exodus 20, uh, it's interesting because the people were so terrified. They were so put off. In modern vernacular, they were so jacked up about the fact that God was represented in this way. They wanted nothing to do with him personally. Uh, it says in, in Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19, it says, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings of the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. In other words, Moses, we're really not comfortable with this, so you talk to God, and then you come talk to us, and if we have a beef, we're going to talk to you, and then you go talk to God. We really don't want to have a direct relationship with him. Because, again, if you look at that, they're saying we don't want a personal relationship because we fear him, we fear his holy, we fear his wrath. It, it, again, the rules were you can't approach because sin had not been dealt with. All of this, all of this points to the, the, the cross, and, and the writer's going to get to that. Uh, so it says in, in verse 20, they couldn't endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches a mountain, it'll be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Moses' fear, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 9, uh, where Moses was terrified. God, after seeing the rebellion of the people, he was going to wipe out the whole nation. And Moses gets on his face before God. He intercedes because he sees that God is so powerful and that, again, he's not tame. He's not there to do our bidding. And he sees this. He identifies this, this in God. And he knows that he has the power to destroy this nation. And, and he's terrified as well. That's Mount Sinai. That's what happened on Mount Sinai. Verses 22 through 24, we're going to go through those and we'll come back again and, and, and look at them a bit. He says in verse 22, but you have come. Now, he says in, in verse um, 18, he says, you have not come. And now he's saying, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable, innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better 
things than that of Abel. It's the same God. You hear people talk about that, that cruel, nasty God of the Old Testament. I'm so glad that, no, it's the same God. There are different things, major differences in the way that God approaches man and the way that the covenant covers man in the Old Testament and in the new covenant in the blood of Christ where it takes away the barrier. I mean, there's huge differences. We'll look at that as we go here. It says, when he says, you've come to Mount Zion, uh, he's saying, you haven't come to that mountain, to these formerly Jewish people who would know absolutely what Mount Sinai was all about. They totally got what he was saying here. He says, you're not, you haven't come to that mountain. That's not part of the new covenant. There's a new mountain. There's a better mountain. It essentially, this is another comparison. This whole book of contrasting, look at the old covenant. Now look at Christ. Here, look at the old covenant. covenant. Now look at Christ. This is what was then, and this is better. This is what was then, and this is better. And now he's saying, look, you haven't come to that old mountain, the Mount Sinai, where the law came, but you've come to Mount Zion. Now there were three ways the people associated Mount Zion, and I'll just go through them quickly here. Zion would become associated with the whole city of Jerusalem. Uh, it was the city of God himself, the home of God, and that's synonymous with saying Zion here. The people would have understood that. Uh, also, we know that Mount Zion figures heavily in end times prophecy. The heavenly Jerusalem mentioned here is the one, is the same one that's mentioned in the book of Revelation towards the end of the book where John the apostle in his vision of the apocalypse says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God and the angel goes and measures this thing that's 1,500 miles cubed. I mean, that's a big deal. <laughs> we get to live there at one point. So we see that, but also what I want to look at here is Mount Zion in Jesus' day. As I mentioned when we were receiving communion, when we came to the Lord's table a little bit ago, Mount Zion is the place where the Last Supper was. Jesus found this room. He had, and, and God from eternity past knew what he was going to fulfill in this. And he knew the significance that this mountain would play in the hearts and lives of his people. So uh, this is where the Last Supper was. It, as I mentioned, the highest place in, in the old city. Interesting, because when he left there and he went down to the garden, that's at the lowest place in the city. Uh, the, the Garden of Gethsemane is just off the Kidron Ravine. I mean, you go all the way down, 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 and there's the Kidron Ravine, and just on the edge of the ravine on the other side, on the, the Mount of Olives side, is the Garden of Gethsemane. So he goes from the highest point to the lowest point. Just That's for your entertainment. Anyway, 50 days earlier, there was the sacrifice. No, it wasn't a lamb. It was the lamb in the cross. This is Pentecost. Three days after that, there was the deliverance. No, not the Red Sea. The resurrection. God now ratifies his covenant in giving the spirit, not the law, but he gives the spirit on the very same day of their calendar. The, the parallels here 
are magnificent. I love the way that God in his foreknowledge set this. You can't make this stuff up. Also, instead of fear and terror, the Spirit is given with an attitude of love and grace, forgiveness, restoration, relationship, fellowship with God. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37 says, When the people heard the gospel, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what what shall we do? Peter gives, he, 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 they go through this whole thing on the day of Pentecost with the Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire and the mighty rushing wind, the tempest. <laughs> and, and, and the, the tongues of fire on people's heads, not on a mountain now, but actually not separated from God any longer, but able to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The fire of God comes to rest upon men. And, and they go through this whole deal. Peter gets up and preaches. And as he does, the people, it says they're pierced to the heart. And they said, what, what do we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. 3,000 died when God came down to Sinai. Significantly, the exact same number were pierced, but not with swords, with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and were imparted life. Verse 22 continued, it says, into uncounted numbers of angels. Uh, think of worshiping with others. Uh, when you, you know, that point where you've entered in, you're, you're just worshiping. Things of earth are strangely dim in the light of his glory. And just, I love entering into worship. I love that point. Think of worshiping with others when you've entered in and then multiply that by millions, myriads of angels, and not one of them sings off key. an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, verse 23, uh, who are registered in heaven and to God, the judge of all, the spirits of men made perfect. Six things. This, this verse is packed. Verse 23, part of verse 24. Six things that, that are worth noting here. First, as he says to the general assembly, that's the church. Now, Usually the word for the church is ecclesia. Some people say ecclesia, but and who knows. But uh, I'll just act like I know how you, you say it. Uh, but the ecclesia, that means the called out ones, the set apart ones. That's not the word used here. Uh, as I was studying this, I was, I was blown away. I'd never seen this before, and I've taught Hebrews before. But it was like, what this word is, the general assembly means the joyous festival. In other words, the church of the firstborn, the general assembly, the joyous festival and church of the firstborn. In other words, that's the gathering of the saints. That's us. And he's talking about this innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. When we're there, it's a joyous festival. That's what he says. And, and, and I mean, I, I looked at that and I thought, I got to study this out more. And so I ended up with my own little rabbit trail, as I was preparing for this, and it's like, you know what it means? Joyous festival. That's it. 
Uh, so anyway, that's the first thing. The second thing is of the firstborn. That's plural. You're among the firstborns here. And that's what he's talking about. What he's saying here, folks, in context, here in chapter 12, is you have what Jacob cheated Esau for. You get the whole package. Jesus is the firstborn. You have his name. You have his position. That's us. We get the birthright. We get the blessings. It didn't change. It was a shadow. It was a picture of what God would do in you and I. These are phenomenal truths. I, I get so excited for this. I was just walking around. It just I woke up this morning and my wife goes, how do you wake up so happy? <laughs> <laughs> and I think I started singing something obnoxious or whatever because that's how I am. But my point is, is that I've just been excited about this. I love this passage so much for us here. So he says that... Uh, the shadow of Esau and the blessing and the birthright and all of that, it's a shadow that's fulfilled with you and I as the church. We get this. This is our inheritance. And, and that's not the only place in God's word in the New Testament that talks about the inheritance that we have and the birthright that we have. The shadow fulfilled. The third thing he says, who are registered in heaven. If you belong to Jesus, did you know that you are already registered this isn't like you line up at the gate and say, is my, is my, is my name? Yeah, the books will be open and your, your name better be in the book because if it's not, you are beyond help at that point. Serious thought, but it's true. The Lamb's book of life exists now. And if you've let the weight of your life down on Jesus, that's a done deal. He's not an Indian giver. He doesn't pull it back. Can people walk away? We've talked about that here in Hebrews, and I'm not going to belabor it again. The, the, the big thing about that is, is you never live your life to where that's a question. You don't ever have to worry about it. And if it's a question in your life, deal with it today, folks. If perhaps you're not certain, talk to me. Talk to God. <laughs> Make sure that you know what side you fall on when it comes to the things of God as eternity is there uh, right in front of all of us. And he says, and to God, the judge of all, interesting, there's no higher court. If you've been forgiven, it's sealed. He's the judge. He's the one that adjudicates each person's life. And, and, And no, it's not on all the good things you've done versus all the bad things you've done. It's on the one thing that you've done or not done. Have you allowed the work of the cross to impact you personally? Have you trusted Christ for your sins and been given a new nature and been given his holiness, been given his righteousness? The things, again, the benefit is is so great. The writer wants to bring out to these people who are struggling, look, There's no comparison. When you look at Mount Sinai, when you look at what the package includes, there is absolutely no... It it is pale. It is insignificant by comparison to what we have with Mount Zion. So God, the judge of all, he is the judge and he is the one who will judge the world. 
The fifth thing we see is he talks about the spirits of just men made perfect. What he's talking about there is departed people who were redeemed. Have you ever thought about this? There are There is no such thing as a dead Christian. There are no dead Christians. There are people who lose this body, who shed this mortal body, but the Bible tells us that instantly we take on immortality and we have a new body that's fitted for heaven that we will be able to live in for the rest of eternity. And that's not a whole bunch of days. It's just a place that we don't quite get because we're finite. We have finite brains. We don't. Oh, man. It, it's you, I call it popping circuit breakers. You just can't get there from here when you try to figure the things of eternity. I remember the day when I realized eternity is not a whole bunch of days. I'm like, what? It was like, it just, it just started popping breakers. And I'm going, oh God, I'm so glad that's your job. I know I can't figure it out. I just know that you love me and I'm going to live forever. That's the point. Um, there are no such thing as dead Christians. You're part of that group. The holiness of God doesn't hurt them. And if you belong to him, it won't hurt you. Why? Number six. And to verse 24, because of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. Sprinkling blood always refers to purification of sin. That's what, I mean, it's synonymous throughout God's word. When you look at Blood, what they would do, the, the blood of the sacrifice would be taken, a hyssop branch, it's like a broom. If you've ever looked at the western wall, the wailing wall in Jerusalem and all that, you see little shrubby bushes growing out of it, that's hyssop, okay? Uh, so it'd be this little broom-like plant, and they would take that, and, and they would dip it in the blood, and then they would sprinkle it on the priest. And remember, Moses sprinkled it on the people at one time. It would be cleansing so that he could come into God's presence and not die. It's kind of important. We have a better sprinkling. And, and the reason why he connects Abel here, this is fascinating. Uh, Cain committed the very first crime when he murdered Abel. That's the first time we see that type of thing happen in God's word. In Genesis 4.10, it says, The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was Abel's voice crying out for? Judgment. Judgment. Now the crimes of humanity have soaked into the soil of our world. Think about it. And it cries out for judgment. Judgment will come. And you either have been covered in the blood of Christ or the blood of Abel cries out against you. That's heavy. That's a truth. Because the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in Romans that, that when, when Adam died, all died. And he says, death spread to all men. God's work of redemption in, in, in bringing us into alignment with Him, His, by simple faith, by simply coming to a point of saying, Lord, I believe it. I know that you died for me. I know that the work of the cross was effective, that your blood was effective in my life. If that doesn't happen, then it's the blood of Abel. That's the writer's point here. The point is, would you rather have the blood of Jesus over you than to have to answer 
for the blood of Abel. It leads to the sixth part here. Oh, good, we're going to have time to finish up. I was kind of concerned, but um, that's because I've been really trying not to rabbit trail and stuff. Uh, the sixth and final warning in this book, remember we've looked at, at, there have been a number of warnings all the way along. And, and this is the danger of denying. And what the writer does here uh, in Hebrews in verse 25 starts with, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. That's a warning. It's a sober warning. He says, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, Sinai, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, Zion. You see, it's not all warm fuzzies, guys. God, I love the fact that the writer never compromises the integrity of who God is as he gives this particular uh, series of statements, this Bible study, if, as you as you see, he, he's not compromising and he's not painting God as this warm, fuzzy teddy bear guy. He's saying, look, he is still holy. And you either come under the blood of Christ or you are still under the blood of Abel and see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. How does he speak? He speaks two ways. There's the word rhema, which means the spoken word. And then there's the word logos, which is the written word. And we could get off onto that. But the point is, God still speaks. He still speaks. And and what the writer is saying, he knows that. That is presupposed here. He's, He's assuming that the people he's talking to understand that God is speaking. And he's saying, whatever you do, don't refuse that. If they didn't do well when they had bounds set around the mountain and that was quaking and smoking and the tempest of wind and, and the lightning and the thunder and all of that depicting the holiness of God. Don't refuse him who speaks from heaven when we talk about Mount Zion because God is the same. The covenant is different. It's easy to come into relationship with him and not fear. But if you don't, that's what remains. It's a warning to not deny him. To turn away from the new covenant is far worse than turning away from the old. That's why the writer, he he is so, he, he loves these people. This is a pastor's heart that he writes with. And he's saying, I don't want to see you make this monumental mistake and turn away from Christ because it's, you think it's really, really good in Christ. You got to understand it's really, really bad outside of Christ. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised saying yet once more, I'll shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this yet once more, verse 27, indicates the removal of these things that are being, that are being shaken as the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. So the picture here is this. Imagine a clump of dirt that stuck around a pure, perfect diamond, okay? Let's say you got a big honking diamond and it's pure and it's perfect and you got a big chunk of dirt stuck around it. The diamond represents the holiness of God. To get to the diamond, you got to shake off the clump of dirt. 
In this context, believers have been declared holy through the blood of Jesus. We have brought in, we've been brought into the family. The holiness of God resides in us. That same holiness that would have killed the people or the animals resides in you. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit. That's amazing. If that doesn't light your fire, folks, you got wet wood. I'm telling you, this is just an, a powerful truth. And so you've got this clump of dirt over this beautiful diamond. And, and, and what he's saying is in this context, because we've been declared holy through the blood of Jesus, that he's warning, he's saying shaking judgment will come. You're either part of the clump of dirt or through Jesus, part of the diamond. The only thing that's left is that which is indestructible. That shaking will come. And you want to be on the right side of that. He will shake the heavens and the earth. He continues to make us holy from a rough diamond into one that is polished. We know that. We've talked about his sanctifying work a number of times. Talked about it recently when we talked about the positional sanctification that we have being declared holy which is the work of the cross and the practical sanctification that we go through as he is making us holy, as he is working in us through our circumstances, through the trials, through the chastenings, through the circumstances that we go through. And as we grow and we identify those things and we cooperate with the work of his spirit, that sanctification is taking place. Verse 28, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, I like that, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Three thoughts as we begin to wrap up here. First is the gospel is so powerful that it's more dangerous to your soul than anything else because it's the only way to escape the wrath of God. That's the gospel. That's the God we serve. Excuses. He says, don't make excuses. Don't make excuses about not entering in. Excuses won't make it. They won't cut it. They don't work. I think about Jesus when he gave the offer for the people to, he invited all these people to come to the banquet and they all made excuses saying, no, I've got things to do. I've got oxen and I've got this, I've got that. And, and so what did he do? He said, go out on the highways and the byways and get anybody that wants to come. This is a, this is a, a, a single offer that he makes. And, and, and to make excuses, is tantamount to denial. And that's what the writer's warning against. The second thing is the grace of Jesus Christ offers more than you could possibly imagine. Zion is infinitely better than Sinai. The home of God is way better than the courtroom. Not only better than the old covenant, but but better than anything that we could imagine. Thirdly, serving God acceptably uh, as a just as a reminder, uh, service to God flows from fellowship with God. I've seen it before, and, and it's something that is just worth mentioning that we guard our hearts over. Uh, I, I've, I've asked before, well, what were we created for? And people say, well, to serve God. And I'll say, absolutely not. We're created for fellowship with God. Out of fellowship with God flows fruitful service, but you know, the Holy Spirit kind of has to be in it and you can't cover up a weak walk with the Lord with service. Dangerous. We can think that if I'm serving, then, you know, that's sort of a step into growing in my relation. And yeah, God will do things and he, he works in that. He uses it. He uses everything. 
But as far as the impetus to serve, it's not to get closer to God. It's a result of closeness with God that produces the desire to serve him and to be effective in our service. Don't get that backwards. It can look the same on the outside, but it's all about, like everything else, it's about the heart. Verse 29, the last verse in this chapter, for our God is a consuming fire. The reference here again is God's holiness. Outside of Christ is nothing but the law. There's nothing but Sinai and judgment. In Christ, we receive his holiness. We, we get his grace. We get the inheritance, all of the things that we've been talking about. The truth that God is a consuming fire is actually a comfort to the believer. We realize that the Father poured his consuming fire of judgment onto the Son at the cross. That's where it was satisfied. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because the judgment that would have come to us, the judgment that would have come to Israel at the base of Mount Sinai was placed upon the Son. Praise God. When he did it, it completely consumed the guilt of sin in all who would believe. The penalty of sin was consumed in Jesus at the cross. There's no better news. There's no better news. So we've looked at Mount Sinai. Praise God that we're not under the old covenant that, that motivated people by fear, but fear never changed a heart and it never will. I will never be a fire and brimstone preacher that just puts guilt on people to get them to comply. No, I would much rather tell you about the grace of God and the love of God and to understand the balance, understand the fact that he is a consuming fire. He is a God of justice and he will judge. And yet there's a very simple transaction that comes into play that causes that judgment to go right past us is when we realize that that judgment was poured out on Christ. And we trust that personally. No longer not wanting to hear from God, not wanting to be close to him, but having the ability, as we're told in chapter 4, to, to boldly approach the throne of grace in time of need. That's the God we serve. That's why his being a consuming fire is a great comfort to you, to me, people that belong to him. Let's pray. Father, I just, I'm just almost speechless, which is hard for me, Lord, <laughs> at, at, at your glory, at the things that you've done.